Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. All right, good morning. I don't know if you saw, but I kind of struggled bringing the podium over here. It's like, if you're preaching in the morning, it's a test of your strength. <laughs> Bring this podium over. Glad I didn't drop it or make a scene <clears throat> until I addressed it in front of you all right now. Uh, welcome to Redemption Hill Church. My name is Blake Sellers, and I am an elder here at the church. Uh, that's the first time I've been able to say that while preaching, so that's pretty exciting. Before that, I was just elder candidate, staff pastor, those types of things, but fully instated elder. So welcome to Redemption Hill Church. No matter uh, where you are joining us from, whether on the stream or in person, thank you for making it a priority to be here this morning. As TJ said... When we make choices to be here, to worship together, to sing, to praise, we're making small choices to push back the darkness in our hearts, the darkness in our world around us, the darkness that impacts us so often. And so I just want to thank you not just for being here, but for making the choice to push back darkness this morning. That's what we intend to do here today is to push back the darkness from our hearts. If I'm honest, and and I'm sure you would be, if you would be as well, at times you notice there's more darkness than you would like in there. If we're honest, the, the sin that kind of permeates our world does seep into our lives as well. But this morning what we want to do is take in the truth of the gospel and let it permeate into who we are at our very core. And let the Holy Spirit transform us so that new hearts might be created, that old hearts might be cast aside so that we can reflect our creator a little more accurately and provide maybe just a little bit of a shadow of our good and gracious king. I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we'll get into the word of the Lord this morning. Before I do, um, I just want to maybe reflect a little bit on... um, where we've been as a church through the pandemic. As TJ said, it's been 14 months or so since some families have been able to gather together here. And in the past six to nine months or however long it's been since we've been able to have in-person gatherings, there have been some that either due to um, having young children or just not feeling safe have, have not been able to join us. And I know for me, whenever I have extended periods of time of of loneliness or, um, or isolation. I'm not necessarily prone to reflect the goodness of God because it's difficult for me to see that whenever I'm just alone to myself with social media, with everything else that is kind of berating us, bombarding us with how terrible and how ugly the world is, how terrible and ugly the things that are impacting our lives are. And so as TJ announced that that kids' classes are coming back, this is by no means saying that, hey, we're done, like COVID is is finished. But it is, I think, in in my own heart, just a a step of joy that some sense of normalcy is, is coming about. Yes, we still have to be socially distanced, and yes, we will still wear masks, and yes, we'll still work on, you know, those of us who will get get vaccinated, but as we bring our children back, they will have the opportunity to not only be apart from 
<laughs> the adults a little bit from up here. Uh, but they will have their own opportunity to be learning and engaging in the gospel in kids' classes. And for me, that's exciting. And then for me, too, it's exciting to know that maybe there will be a little bit less distraction on a Sunday morning up here. Although, as I look at my children wearing upside-down sunglasses and throwing a Spider-Man at my face, there's a little bit of joy to be had there. Um, so let's just, uh, as a reminder, uh, I just want to encourage you, if you have children that are, are uh, maybe a little bit rambunctious and are here with you this morning, um, be patient with them. And if you don't have children, um, please kindly ignore them <laughs> and do your best to uh, focus on the word of the Lord this morning. As TJ would say, that was not in the notes. Let's go ahead and pray. God, I, I, I don't have to invite you here. You, you are already here. You say that when there are two or more gathered together, your spirit is among us and working with us. So I, I don't have to invite you here, but, but God, I, I pray that our hearts would be open to you. I pray that, that as we hear your word this morning that we would seek to humble ourselves enough to seek to be transformed by you, to see you as better than we. God, to see your commands and your um, command to love and the life that you have drawn us to and laid out for us to live is so much better than the one that we could fabricate and pursue on our own. So God, I just pray that, um, that you would move in us today. As corny as it sounds, that, that when we leave, we would not be who we were when we came in. That we would leave with transformed hearts, with more light than darkness in our hearts. Amen. This morning we'll be in the book of First John, as we have been for the last several months. We're in the last chapter, chapter 5, and we'll be covering verses 1 through 5 this morning. As we are nearing the end of the book, I'll just kind of lay out some context real quick if you haven't been with us throughout the series. First John is this collection of letters written to early house churches, primarily aimed at already practicing Christians. And what, these, what John wanted to tell these already practicing Christians was really what a life looks like, a life in Christ looks like. He brings up all of these um, kind of comparisons, these diagnostics that we can look at as believers to really see if we are acting like Christ or, in his words, acting like the world. He'll bring up things like love and hate, and he'll even apply those to things as intimate as other believers in the body, and, and we've struggled through some of that. Um, I know our MC through especially that love and hate sermon, uh, we kind of, we looked at it before TJ was going to give his sermon and, you know, we were wondering where is TJ going to go with this, this section of scripture because I don't think that I hate John and Megan, people in my MC. I don't think that I hate Emma and, but really our, what John is seeking to do through this book is to set a new paradigm, a paradigm of, a paradigm of perfect Christ-likeness. One that whenever we compare with Christ, my indifference can look like hate compared to Christ. Whenever I look at Christ's example and how I interact with people around me, including my neighbors and my coworkers, 
there's a lot of indifference and there's a lot of apathy and there's a lot of me staying in my lane and ignoring others. And that's what John seeks to, to bring out of us and has done over and over and over in this book. When confronted with things that we continually um, struggle with, things that we continually fail at, it can be difficult to hear those time after time after time. As in this book, the book of 1 John, he does hammer on kind of the same um, ideas over and over, especially this love for one another. And this can become wearisome. It, it could become tiring to hear. could leave you feeling kind of beaten down. But John's tone throughout the book, and I hope the tone that, that Redemption Hill Church and that I deliver today is one of a, a gentle, fatherly, caring tone. John's words throughout this book, he, he uses terms like little children, as a father would care for his children. As if sharing to us and to the early church that these things are, are so important that I want you to know this more than anything else. I don't want you to feel beat down by them, but I want them to provide life to you because the things that you're engaging in are walking you close to death. Don't engage in those anymore. And so we'll walk towards that a little bit this morning as well. Looking at uh, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 5 to seek out again this, this sense of Christ-likeness. And again, there's going to be a type of diagnostic that John is going to walk us through. There's also going to be a joyful proclamation that we're going to see here. And so um, if you could, as we're reading these verses, uh, just be aware and look for what that diagnostic and proclamation will be, and then um, I'll give you the answers at the end so there won't be a test. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In preparation for delivering the sermon to you, I found this section of scripture incredibly stirring. Because not only do we have this diagnostic, but we also have a great proclamation. The diagnostic is in really verses one through three, but verse three sums it up pretty well. And it says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. The first part of that, of, of keeping God's commandments are not new to us. It's all throughout scripture that those who love God will keep his commandments and Jesus, throughout his ministry, he kind of summarizes the commandments as loving God and loving others. He said himself, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And that's not the part that we have a hard time with. 
we understand that part. Maybe the obedience part of it we might have a difficult time with at times. But understanding that the Bible might say that you should obey the commandments and the commandments are love God and love others, that isn't really anything new or groundbreaking for us. And the book of 1 John has dealt really extensively about loving one another. We have several sermons um, that TJ or I or Garrett have delivered uh, they're on, and uh, Pastor Demarcus as well. They're on the YouTube channel and our, on our podcast feed. Um, I'd encourage you to review those or, or look back at those if, if you want to get a greater sense of what John is kind of trying to teach us about loving one another within the church. It's safe to say that loving one another is extremely important in 1 John as it is throughout the rest of the Bible. But where I want to kind of start our study this morning is a little bit differently. I want to go right to the middle of the passage, verse 3, in the second part of verse 3. And I want to draw our attention to that. If you could bring up that on the screen, verse 3. It says, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm going to read that again. God's commandments are not a burden to us. Who would answer in this room that maybe sometimes we don't believe that? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, but if maybe you are raising your hand internally about uh, sometimes you do feel that obeying the command of, of loving others and obeying and loving the commands of God, maybe you would say that they, are, they do feel burdensome at times. But it's, it's right here in Scripture that they are not burdensome. And so let's say it together in case there's some unbelief within ourselves. If you could read that second part of verse 3, it's that second line. And his commandments are not burdensome. Thank you. Love that engagement. So maybe you aren't believing that part of the scripture. Maybe at times in your life you haven't believed that the commands are good. Maybe at times you haven't believed that what God is, has set for your life in his scripture is, is worth living out. Maybe you have seen this line more as duty and not joy. Well, as a starting point, when we aren't believing this statement or others like it in scripture, there are two options. Either we are wrong or the Bible is wrong. And I'm not sure what your normal batting average is when it comes to being correct about anything. I feel like I'm pretty smart, but I know that I wouldn't get in the Hall of Fame with my numbers. So let's go back to the source with the perfect batting average who hits for a lot of power. His commandments are not burdensome. That's what scripture says. So maybe let's talk about what that means and maybe why we feel the opposite at times. You see, the book of 1 John and all throughout the Bible is about this struggle of, of what it is to be a child of God and, and then what it is to be of the world. And it is exactly this struggle that we deal with and the book of 1 John has dealt with that leads us at times to not believing this passage. So if we go back and see that the commands of God are not burdensome, but if we take a step back and see what is not supposed to be burdensome, it is loving the children of God, and loving and obeying God's commands. 
But like we said, sometimes we don't feel that to be true. I admitted that for you, well, for me, but I also admitted it for you. Um, You're welcome. But sometimes God's commands do feel burdensome. But when? When does loving God and loving others feel like a duty, a task, something that is drudgery that you have to participate in? Well, when God or other people get in our way, right? We would never, we might never say it out loud. Maybe we would. Um, maybe particularly, particularly when your neighbor uh, pulls out in front of you in traffic or when their tree falls on your fence or when they honk their car horn waking up your sleeping child or when they bought the new car that you wish you could afford or went on the vacation that you wish you could go on. Those are times that we might think that loving our neighbors gets burdensome. And we might even think that God gets in our way sometimes. We may not say it out loud, but when we have expertly laid out the plans of our lives, our careers, our families, our finances, our time, our parenting, our hobby, our service, our charity, our fill-in-the-blank, but then God asks us to do something else, or we see in Scripture the Holy Spirit moves us to, to change the way that we orient all of those lists of things there. I'm sure, not, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying this, that at times, even when, whenever I was putting together that list, part of me was just, but not that. But that part of my life doesn't, doesn't need to obey God, right? My hobby that I spend a lot of time on, and I know I talked to my MC and my wife would agree, as well as some of the guys in this group, TJ has referenced golf several times over the last few weeks, and I know he's talking about me. Um, (laughs) at times my hobby is not aligned with God. At times my hobby becomes my God. It becomes the thing that I strive to get to put all of my time and my effort into. And what I hope to get out of it is acceptance and success and fulfillment and satisfaction. And I know that that sounds silly because it's golf, but I'm sure that you have your silly things too. And it's when the intersection of scripture and our idolatry of these things come together that then the burdensome thing happens. And we may not call it burdensome. We may call it apathy. We may call it disobedience. But friends, the the pattern and those things that we listed and, and those things that, that do make the commands of God feel burdensome have something in common, and it's typically the possessive pronoun before the subject, the our, our careers, our lives, our hobbies. Friends, sometimes we have created a life that doesn't revolve around God's commandments and what he has set forth for our lives. And we may not realize it at first. It may not look like an idol at first. But then as we walk down the road of this idolatry and of this plan and in our lives, we realize maybe we've gotten too deep. Maybe we've, put in, we've committed to putting in too many hours at a job so that we can continue to move up the pay scale and continue to get the nicer house and continue to go to, on the nicer vacation and buy the nicer car. But because we've made that sacrifice of our time and our mental capacity and our emotional energy into this 
40 to 60 to 80 hour a week job. We don't have time for the loving of one another's. We have created the burden. God's commands in itself are not a burden to us, but whenever we engage in our sin and we have an idol that, that comes in uh, contention with that command, that's a burden that we have created. That's the idol that we have chosen to engage in. Friends, the commands of God were given to us to give us a life of abundance, a life of fulfillment. Loving God and loving others, God says, brings us to the fullest of our lives. Not burdensome duty, but life. Christ himself said that he came to bring life and life to the fullest, and he was the most obedient of all. In the garden, God gave a command to Adam and Eve. He said, don't eat from that tree. And while we can see that on its face, if we look a little bit deeper, we can kind of see the implicit command within that one command. Within the command not to eat from one of the many, many, many food sources in the garden where the commands, trust me, love me, rely on me, trust that what I have said to you is true. Rely on me for my provision, for my joy, for your purpose. Love me and see that all I have given you in this place is very good. I made it just for you. And that's exactly what the commands of God are for us. Within the commandments is this implicit plea to see God as good, to trust that his design for our lives and how we live them is best. His way is best, not in the way that that one route on Google Maps tells you that will get you, 20 minutes, get you somewhere 20 minutes faster. It's not a better. His ways are best. A life lived the way God designed it is about experiencing the fullest, most vibrant, most beautiful, most impactful, most joyous life possible. And friends, that is what scripture describes for the life of the believer, but I'm convinced that so often that's exactly the life that we leave on the table. If any of this resonates with you at all, I just encourage you to pause and take a moment. Does worshiping God feel like drudgery? Does seeking God feel like fruitless duty? Does getting to know your neighbor, your coworker, your golf buddy, those that you work out with, your family members, feel like something that you just don't have time for? Does that sound like you? Friends, I know that my heart struggles with feeling like the commands of God are burdensome sometimes, and I'm sure that you would be there too. And sometimes for much longer spans of time than I'd like to admit. But if you felt a tinge of conviction there, I'd like you to know that this isn't the end of this sermon. The sermon isn't just to make you feel bad about the ways that you failed, just like the book of John has not aimed to make you feel shame. A few weeks ago, TJ talked about inner voices, the voices of self, the voices of the Antichrist, and the voice of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is that we would listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning. As he speaks about our lives, as he speaks into the idols that we have placed ahead of God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction. I do pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the areas of our lives that are out of sync with him and lead us into the truth of who we are as sons and daughters of God. 
Because if we walk out of here with shame, we, we will not be walking into more life. If we walk out of here with shame, then we have turned into the fear that the Holy Spirit and the victory of God uh, captures for us. And so we'll get into the second uh, part of the scripture this morning. We'll be in verses four through five. And this is really the turning point of this message. It pronounces upon us who we are as children of God. And it says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So before we get too far, I I do want to dispel something that maybe you've heard from um, other churches or um, other messages that have taken this the world and just attached the identity of the person who annoys you the most, uh, maybe another political party. Whenever the Bible is talking about having victory over the world, uh, he's not talk- they're not talking about having victory over the internal revenue service or whoever steals your money or your joy or whatever in the world. That is not what he's talking about here. Remember, John's word is kind of this catch-all term for anything that is not in submission to God, anything that has not been transformed by the saving work of Jesus Christ. And again, this use of the term the world, John uses it over and over again when even talking specifically to Christians. So there's a part of the world that is trying to infiltrate Christians. So let's talk about what that might mean to give us a baseline. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, this will not be on the screens, uh, but it But Paul writes that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle with the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. So that's the attachment of the world here. It's not that person that you've already identified in your mind. It's the enemy. It's sin. So with that groundwork, let's go back, just so that we're all on the same page here. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What John is saying here and what the Bible pronounces over and over to us is that our faith in Jesus as the Son of God makes us victorious over the spiritual forces of evil, over the sin that consistently nags at you over the temptation that bombards you. Our faith in Jesus Christ as a sacrificial lamb who atoned for our sins makes us victorious over our sinful and evil desires and because it proclaims him over them. It doesn't proclaim you as Blake over them, but it proclaims Jesus, me as the son of God, over them. And you have this victory if, if your faith is in Christ. You have the title of conqueror, not due to your own efforts or your own righteousness or your own wisdom or your own planning, but you and I have this victory over evil through Jesus Christ alone. He won it for you. So as we're talking about the second 
part of the chapter here. We might think, what does this victory have to do with the commandments to love God and love others and about that feeling burdensome at times? Well, I'm so glad you asked. The burden we feel when it comes to loving God by sacrificing our plans, our careers, our coping mechanisms are oftentimes due to our fear. Our fear that if we don't put in long and late hours in our job that we won't get that next promotion or next bonus. The fear that if we press into relationships and community that people will see us for who we really are and reject you and hurt you. Friends, these things that we have victory over because of Christ, those things are the cares and the desires of the world, of our flesh. They are things that not, are not of God, and they are born in sin. They make, him, they make his commands feel burdensome, but church, it doesn't have to be this way. The victory that Jesus won in his life, death, and resurrection conquered sin and made it so that we share in his conquering. Our faith in his victory imparts on us the title of victor. Victor over the fear that we feel that keeps us from being generous with our time to our neighbor. Victor over the fear that holds us captive to logging hour after hour on a job that we were never called to in the first place. Victor over fear of sitting alone in the quiet during our free time, afraid of of our own thoughts, of our own selves, afraid that we might find out who we really are. Victor over the paralyzing fear of what we have seen and read on the news and on social media or about what the other party wants to take away from you or the world that they want to create for you to live in. When we live in fear, everything feels burdensome. But we, when we live with the mentality of a victor, of a conqueror, in Christ as conqueror, we can rest and have peace in knowing that the pursuits of the world which have owned us, they don't have power over us anymore. Our fears don't have to cripple us because we can step out from underneath them and into our identity as a son and daughter of Christ. Does this mean that the world no longer has any impact on us? Well, no, the Bible itself says Jesus' words in John 16 says, I have said these things to you that you may be, that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we're going to get into Romans chapter 8 here in a second, where Paul kind of outlines the the victory that we have with Christ. This should give us power. Under Christ, this gives us authority over the fear and sin that so constantly ravages us. Romans 8, 31 through 39, Paul writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Bible says that we will face difficulty, that we will have real burdens, but within tribulation and difficulty, distress and persecution, none of those things can separate us from our Creator. Security in our relationship with God and the very act of obeying him is the very thing that brings us victory over fear. When we walk in step with him, we put our faith in action. When we walk in our fear and ignore the commands of God, we reinforce the lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. The lie that God and his ways are not in your best interest. The lie that God doesn't really love you. The lie that you are better off creating your own path. When we walk in the faith of a loving God who has conquered our fear, who do we have to fear? The gospel of Jesus Christ eradicates our insecurity. It eradicates our fear. God knew that walking according to our plans instead of his would lead to an unfulfilled life, a life full of hurt and pain and death. And that is why he pleads with us all throughout scripture to see him and his ways as good. And that is why he sent his son to live a life of perfect obedience, a life that could not be overcome by fear and insecurity, by greed or pride, a life that we can't live on our own, but a life that he willingly laid down in death that you and I deserve. And in death, he took all of our fear, our greed, our pride, our insecurity, and our sin, and the power that that sin has over us, and he conquered it. He conquered it by raising from the grave. And as our faith is in him, he has placed within us the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Romans 8 tells us that you and I, if we have been reborn by faith in Christ, we have the very same power that raised death to its knees. So let us walk in that victory. Let us not walk in fear, but let us walk together in love for one another. Let us walk together in love for our neighbor and in love for our Father. Let us walk together in generosity of time and finances to those around us. Let us walk together in the pursuit of bringing Christ's love to those around us through word and deed. Let us walk together in the truth that in Christ's victory, we too are victors over the sin and fear that seeks to entrap us and seeks to entrap others. Friends, we won't always feel victorious. At times, we will, we will feel that his commands are burdensome. At times, we will give in to sin. But when we do, let us take that as a cue to reach out to God and reach out to our community in confession and let us repent and submit to the king whose commands are good and gracious and kind to us. My hope for our city is that Columbia, Missouri would see the conquerors of Jesus Christ as compassionate, generous, and truthful people. And I pray that neighborhoods all around the city would experience the love of God through us. 
Redemption's Hill Church is not large. If you look around, we're even less large than maybe who are attending virtually. Uh, but typically we have around 65 adults and around 40 kids spread throughout the city in different schools and different neighborhoods. What would it look like if our community lived as if loving God and loving others was not a burden, but it was a joy? What could it look like for your neighbor to feel the love of Christ through your loving obedience? If we weren't so preoccupied with our plans and instead of ignoring the neighbors, they would actually be able to see and know the love of God through your love for them. Towards the end here, I want to take a little bit of time to name some of the neighborhoods that our members and regular attendees live in. And then we'll close by praying for them. If I miss your neighborhood uh, at the end, I'll pause for a little bit. You can feel free to yell out the name of your subdivision or your neighborhood. I really do welcome that. Uh, But I'll just start here. And as I read them, if this is your neighborhood, um, individual people might come to mind. Don't put them out of your mind. See that as the Holy Spirit is speaking to you to pray for them specifically. Um, again, I might miss your neighborhood, so please read it or uh, yell it out. Rothwell Heights, Rockbridge, Quail Creek, Oakwood Hills, Katy Lake, El Chaparral, The Meadowlands, Park Deville. Kings Meadow, Lakeland Acres, University Park, Georgetown, Creek's Edge, Meadowbrook, Meta Vista, Springdale Gardens. The neighborhoods that I just named are just the ones that I'm aware of that we have people living in in the city of Columbia. We have much more. We have people living in Boonville and near Hinton and in Rocheport to name a few other communities. In our time as we wrap up and during worship this morning, I want to pray for those neighborhoods and communities. I want to pray that the love of Christ would flow out of us and out of other churches in the city to our neighborhoods and to the surrounding community. I want to pray that the victory of Christ would be proclaimed to them in word and in deed. And I want to pray that that they would see the people of Christ not as of people who live in fear, but of people who live in victory of what Christ has done. Friends, I believe that God wants to do incredible, life-changing things to the people that we live around and work with. And his word says that all of heaven rejoices when, one an- when another has come to faith in him. Friends, I want to pray for that future rejoicing. Band, you can come back up. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Please pray along with me. God, I pray for your church. God, I pray that your church would be transformed and would be renewed and would be empowered to love and obey you, not in a stifled, um, fear-driven way that 
if we don't, oh no, what's going to happen to us? God, I pray that we would obey you out of a sense of you having conquered over death. God, I pray that we would obey you and love our neighbor out of a victory that we have in you, a joy that we have in you towards a life that can be lived to its fullest. And God, I I pray with faith that the people in this room and watching the live stream would be transformed by your Holy Spirit. That out of a move of your spirit, that people in our neighborhoods would be impacted. In my neighborhood, the Rockbridge neighborhood, God, I, I pray for those around me that do not know you. God, I want them to know you. God, I, w- I want this city to praise your name and to seek your face and to see you as good and not a buzzkill. God, I pray that you would spark within us a, a fire to pursue that. God, I thank you for your word and your goodness. Move in us. Amen. This morning, we're going to take communion as a church body. Uh, There are individual uh, single-serve communion cups in the back. If you didn't get one, feel free to do that. Um, The act of communion itself is this reminder of the victory that Jesus has won over death and sin. It's a reminder that we are no longer bound by our fears, but that we have been freed by the body and blood of Jesus Christ and that his body and blood has washed over us and brought us into his victory. This morning, if your hope is in Jesus, I ask that as you take the bread and the juice that you would confess your sins, you would proclaim Jesus as savior over that sin. And after you take communion, I ask that you rejoice in thanksgiving for the grace that he has given you. Let's sing together.